If you will, get your Bibles and turn with me to Second Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 11, beginning of verse 11 through 22. But I've got to first go back and sort of explain something. You know, now, a week before last, on the first day of, uh, what is this, July, I had this message already, but I forgot I did something else. I had lined up Jerome doing the Gideon thing. And so, if you were here, I started this, and then well, I better not go for an hour, because people probably leave before the time's up. So, we stopped it. But I had somebody ask me, says, you need to do that one. It's my wife. No, no, not really. But, <laughs> but it's, uh, we're going to pick up today. This is, I had planned it for that day, but I had totally forgot that we had the uh, Gideon speaker lined up. Of course, uh, Jerome did a good job. Miss Mbali spoke and uh, shared her testimony and so forth. And so it, it was well worth it. But I thought, let's just go back and do it. And so we're going to do it again. That's probably the first part. You're going to say, well, I've heard that before. Yeah, you did. That's If you was here that day anyway. But I want to talk about today, America needs revival for survival. Do you agree with that? America needs revival for survival. Now, we've got that. Hold that passage. We'll get to it in just a few moments. But America has seen amazing technological advancements during the past 40 years. But during that same period of time, we have seen an alarming moral decline in our nation. America was founded on as a haven for people seeking liberty to practice their faith without persecution. I wonder what George Washington and Benjamin Franklin's reactions would be if they could take a time machine and travel from the day when they were in office to today and look at what America has become. I don't know about you, but I'm not too proud of it myself. It seems to be getting worse every day. What would they think of our depraved culture and our huge federal bureaucracy? We all know where America has been, but let me ask you this question. Where do you think we're headed? Where do you think we're going as a nation? In 1801, a Scottish professor at the University of Edinburgh wrote the following in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Athenian Republic. And I'm going to quote it. Remember, this was written in 1801, but think about it as I read it this morning. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover they can vote themselves money from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy. The average of the world's greatest civilizations is 200 years. This past 4th of July, we passed 242 years. I don't know if that's a true statement or not, but I think it's got a lot of truth in it anyway. You cannot escape the truth that God not only holds individuals accountable, I believe he holds nations accountable. Now, I've been asked several times, is the United States, is America in the Bible? No, it's not. I think a lot of the principles are. 
I think a lot of things that we stand for and stood for are, and I believe it's a godly, was, was a godly nation. I'm not so positive about that anymore. But I believe America needs a spiritual awakening, a revival. revival. But I don't think it just needs to be a nice option. I believe America needs revival for survival. I love this nation. But I'm afraid unless we turn some things around, we won't have a nation many years from now. It won't be here. I don't want to sound like doom and gloom. I'm just saying with the condition our world's in right now, I mean, riots all over the world. This one doesn't like that candidate, and this one doesn't like that, so they start fighting. And all the name-calling that goes on. The key to any spiritual awakening is found in this chapter we're going to read in just a moment. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. But I want us to look at the verse in its full context this morning. And so that's why I said, hold your finger. And we'll read that verse in just a moment. But I want us to look at what's going on here. If you will, 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 11. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. So I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me. I know some of you may not can stand that long. It's, it's a pretty lengthy thing. I'll try to read it fast. But listen to what's taking place here. Thus Solomon, verse 11, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayers and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among the people, watch what he says in verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as a covenanted with David, your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as a ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And as, this for, and as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this passage you've given us. And, Lord, I just pray that it will open our eyes 
But, Lord, this is a picture of America if we don't turn things around. Lord, how desperately we need to put you back into our government, into our lives, into every thing and place we do and go. Lord, we just ask you to send a revival, a true revival in this place, that we could see this nation begin to turn back to God. Lord, our hearts break when we look around and see the decadence and all the things that's going on in this nation right now as we speak. Lord, please show us a way to turn this around. Go with us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Solomon had just completed the beautiful new temple, which took seven years to build. Over 160,000 workers were involved in the construction of it. The temple contained several tons of pure gold inside its walls. Estimated cost today would be over $300 million to build this temple. In chapter 6, they had dedicated services, and after Solomon prayed, the Bible tells us that the fire of God fell and consumed this burnt offering. The Shekinah glory of God was thick, like smoke, so thick that the priests could not even enter the temple. They had a week-long dedication celebration. Things were going great. I mean, this was this new, beautiful temple that gold and all the finest things you could put into it were inside this. And all these things were there. It couldn't get any better. I mean, this was the best it could get right now. God had blessed it. God had chosen this temple to live in. And let me tell you something. God still chooses these temples to live in today. You may not be here every week, but I guarantee you, Jesus Christ is. And we wouldn't want him any other way. God still fills our churches if, that's a big word, if, we will do the things he tells us to do. He will not desert us. He will not leave us. In fact, he will bless us beyond our wildest imaginations as a church. He said, wait a minute now. We're just a small church. How are you saying that? Yes, we're a small church, but we serve a big God. And that's who's in charge of it. It's not us. If we will just do what God tells us to do, oh, what a difference it will make. They had a week-long dedication celebration. Things were going great. I mean, it couldn't get any better. This beautiful temple. Kings came and queens came just to observe this temple that was built. And how glorious and how honoring it was to God. But let me share with you, just a short time, a few years later, not long at all, this temple would be destroyed and laid to waste. How can that be? How can that happen? How can something so magnificent that God's so full of, because they turned their backs on the God that built it. And, folks, today we're here, I believe, in the same or almost the same situation. If we don't begin to turn this great nation of ours around, God's going to put an end to it. And I don't know about you, but I've got grandkids still growing up, and I don't want that to happen. And I'm convinced with 150% 
that the only hope for America sits in the pews of our churches. It's not going to be the politicians, folks. It's not going to be the government programs. It's going to be when God's people become so concerned about it that we begin to get on our knees and pray and say, God, I don't know what I can do, but show me something. Turn this around, our great nation. Things, again, were so exciting. I mean, it was so fabulous. Kings, queens came to view this building where God says he resides on earth. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Just like Israel, God is speaking to us today. We just read his words that he spoke. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11 through 22. We won't read it again. God is speaking to me. God is speaking to you. God is speaking to our church. And I believe he is also speaking to our nation, America. He's trying to. Most of our congressmen don't want to listen. They don't even want the name God mentioned in anything we do nowadays. Many of them. I shouldn't say most of them. But thank God there's still a remnant, even in Washington, D.C., that believe in the statutes of God. We need to be supporting them. We need to be praying for them. At the time that God spoke these words, Israel was leading the leading world superpower, just like we are today. I don't think anybody, uh, maybe Russia comes close, but we're the leading superpower in the world today. We've got the greatest military that the world's seen and has seen. We're still that way. And I'm not even a soldier. I never was. <laughs> but that's what these guys tell me. That's any, but, but I'm, I'm kidding. But we do. We have the greatest military force in the world today. I hope the day never comes when we need to use that force. But, folks, don't be surprised if it doesn't happen. Even Egypt's Queen Sheba, Queen of Sheba, came to see the glory of Israel. But if you know anything about the Old Testament history, you know that within 275 years, remember America's 242 as of just a week ago, two weeks ago now, 275 years after this warning, the nation of Israel became so corrupt and depraved, the nation of Judah along with Jerusalem and the temple, America stands as a military military world leader today, but we also lead the world in divorce, in violence, in pornography. You see how fast we've turned in a short period of time? Do you think for a moment that God would do this to this church and not do it to our nation? You've got to be kidding yourself. If God would do this to this place and David whom he loved and his family, if we don't begin to turn this great nation around, he'll do the same thing for us. Now, I don't predict when that's going to happen. It may be 100 years. It may be 500 years. I don't know. But I know this. God's Word says, if my people will humble themselves, pray, and turn from their wicked ways, I, God, not me, will heal their land. 
Folks, that's the only hope I believe for America today. It's not how big we can build churches. It's not how beautiful we can make them. Because it doesn't matter in God's eyes. God says, have you turned away from me? And folks, as a general rule of America today, yes, we have. God is not allowed in our schools. God is not allowed in our government. God is not allowed in so many places. I remember when I was in school, grade school, every morning our principal of the school would come over the sound system and we would all stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance. Then he would say a prayer to the whole, I mean, it wasn't a large school, but we had first through sixth grade, I guess it was. Go into school and see if they do that today. Of course not. They can't. It's been restricted. See how much we've turned just in, I can't remember when I was in school, 10 years. <laughs> but it's, it's happened. It's among us. It's happening every day. A few years later, the Babylonians destroyed the nation of Israel, uh, uh, excuse me, of Judah, along with Jerusalem and the temple. America stands again as the military world leader, but we also lead in those places I just told you. That's why I believe we need revival for survival. In this message, I want to simply answer three questions about revival. First of is, first of all, what is true revival? It's a word that probably every one of us heard because used to churches had a spring revival and a fall revival every year. Is that the way this church did, the church you went to? I guess not. I don't see my grins. Oh, yeah, I, there's one. <laughs> but it's, I mean, we had revivals. Now, I know that some of those are not revivals in the truest sense of the word, but they can be. And the reason they're not is because we as the people don't get ready for them. We're not anticipating. Brother Dennis tra travels the country. That's what he does. In fact, he calls himself a revivalist. Isn't that what you call yourself? <laughs> other people call him other things, but that's, that's something else. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But it's he goes to these churches, some small, some large, some in between. And his job is to challenge people to bring re true revival, not just a meeting. We don't need meetings where we get together and just have a good time and sing some songs and go home and nothing changes. We need something where we get on our faces before God and say, God, you've got to change our church. You've got to change this city. You've got to change things in this area. That's why I believe we need revival for survival. Revival is a word that you've probably ever, if I'd ask you, don't raise your hands, but everybody in this room knows what revival is. Churches have, again, used to have spring and fall revivals, and then some had them in summertime. These were meetings where some guest preacher would come and some guest musician and lead a week-long service, but most of these were simply meetings. We don't need meetings, folks. We need a revival. And there's a whole lot of difference right there. Most of these were simply meetings, not really true revivals. We do not need a week of meetings. We've got plenty of meetings as a church already. We need a true revival. Let me share with you what a revival really is. A definition of revival. 
Our word comes from two Latin phrases, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce them this morning, so I'll just say one is R-E, re, which means again, and the other is, yeah, it means to live, live again. Favre, there we go. I'm not French, so I can't say that. Every word is important. Revival is restoring spiritual vitality to a lifeless person, family, church, or a nation. Every word is important. We all know what CPR is. If Robert would happen to have a heart attack right now and fall out in just a few minutes, we've got a machine back there that we put on his chest, or somebody does. I'm not going to do it. I'm sure not going to give him mouth to mouth, so that's not, that's not going to happen. But it's, they put that machine on him, and it shocks his heart, hopefully to get it beating again, so they can rush him to the hospital. We all know what CPR is, or where you, you're hand pumping and so forth. It just, you know, that happens. What does that do? It gets you living again. That's exactly what revival is. Revival is not a meeting. Revival is where God's Spirit comes down and just takes over each and every one of us. And it begins to change our life. We remember what it used to be like when we first became children of God. God's people. We remember those. Let me ask you, have you forgot what it was like to be an on-fire Christian in your life? Have you forgot what it was? What's happened? What happened? What changed about it? Why did it change? Because we get so involved in life and doing, and even in church, we've got meetings we've got to go to, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, and we get so much involved in doing the things of the church that we forget the purpose we're here for. And God says, you need revival. You need to be revived. You haven't lost your salvation. You've just lost the joy of it. Revival is restoring spiritual vitality in a lifeless person, family, church, or a nation. Every word is important. It's important that you get restored back to what you used to be. Now, if you've never been there in the first place, you don't need to be revived. You just need to be vived. That's all you need. So what is that? That's when Jesus Christ comes into your life and makes a difference in your life. That's when Jesus gets a hold of you and says, Wait a minute. Look at the way you're going in life. Are you pleased with this? Look what you're doing. And we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. And it makes an eternal difference in our lives. If you've never been that way before, you don't need to be revival. You don't need revival. You just need Bible. A lifeless person is someone who has lost their zeal and their spiritual life is dull, dead, or despondent. Have you ever been more excited about Jesus or more faithful to Jesus than you are right now? I would ask you to raise your hand, but I don't want to do that. It might embarrass somebody. Have you ever been more excited about Jesus than you are today? If the answer is yes, and only you can answer that, then you need revival. You need something in your life that will put you back like you used to be. 
We've all been there. I've shared with you before, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but years ago when we were just young couple, long years ago, I guess, but I got out of church. Now, I wasn't preaching at the time, but I was serving as a youth director. I served as a music minister. And I just got, I got aggravated some guys in the church, and I quit. For about a year, maybe a little bit over, every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, Jesus, Jesus, (laughs) Judy would get up and take our boys. At the time, I think we only had one or maybe two a little later on. She'd get up and take them to church every service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and anything else in between if they had it. Every day used to aggravate me so much. Before she left, says, you going to church with us? Nope, I'm not going to church. I've had it. I'm not doing anymore. I'd sit in my chair, watch TV. As God is my witness, this is a true story. I remember the after I'd been out about a year, I sat in a chair, and I happened to be watching First Baptist Church Dallas, one of my favorite preachers. Not that I was listening to him, but he got on there, and folks, he knew my name. He was talking to me. And he looked at that TV camera and he said, if you're not what you used to be for Christ, you need to fall on your knees and get back. And as I was sitting in that chair, not caring a thing about church, those hypocrites down there. You know, we do have hypocrites, but there's always room for you. So come on back. (laughs) I began to feel God saying, you know what you ought to do. The next Sunday, I went back to church. When that preacher gave an altar call, I didn't walk down there. God shoved me down there. And I fell on my face and said, God, if you'll take me back, I won't do this again. Right there. Shortly after that, he called me to preach. If I'd known that, I sure wouldn't have gone. Have you ever been spiritually excited more than you are today? Then you need revival. About Jesus, more faithful to Jesus than you are at this moment. If you answered yes, you need revival. Listen to these words that one of our Christian authors wrote. His name's Chris Gowan. Listen to what he says. The greatest need in our land today is a heaven-sent revival, not a man-made or program-generated revival, but a revival straight from the throne of God. Man cannot produce it. Never has there been a preacher who could preach it up. Never has there been a choir or a quartet that could sing it up. If it's real revival, it will be because sovereign God has intervened in people's lives. Church services will take on a new face. It will not be service as usual. Revival is not eyes full of tears. That can be done by the flesh. Revival is not done in the flesh. It's not shouting. That can be done in the flesh too. It's not large crowds. You can have a circus and draw a crowd. It's not folks getting saved. Whoa, 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 whoa. What did he just say? It's not folks getting saved. God graciously saves by grace even when churches are not in a state of revival. The word revival literally means to live again. 
It is God's people coming alive again to be their to their responsibilities toward God. That's not my words. I didn't write that. I wish I had it, but I didn't. Let's look at a history of revivals in America real quick. If you look at the history in the history books, you'll find that America has had two great revival movements that literally shook the entire nation. They refer to them as spiritual awakenings. After two or three generations of our settlers, our first settlers in this nation, after a while, depravity and wickedness began to come into their lives. And remember how this country was founded on. The human instrument of the first great awakening was by a man, a preacher named Jonathan Edwards. He was a highly educated minister. He later became the president of Princeton University. Edwards was a small man who wore spectacles so thick you couldn't even hardly see his eyes. He spoke in a thin, monotone voice with very few gestures, but the power of God was so strong through his preaching, men and women cried out and literally grabbed onto the wooden supports of the building, building afraid they were fixing to fall into hell. Wow. In a short period of time, over 30,000 residents of New England and up in the eastern, northeastern coast were converted and revival fires spread throughout the 13 colonies. Many respected historians claim that America's freedom spirit was born during that revival. Records indicate at least one-third of the total population of the colonies was converted to Christ during this sweeping revival. The Second Great Awakening in 1841, New York and the Midwest. After the Revolutionary War and then the War of 1812, thousands of new settlers came to the New World and many moved westward into the wilderness they called of Ohio and Kentucky and so forth. Once again, sin and wickedness ruled in many of the cities and in the pioneer regions. These were the days of what they called camp meetings, if you've heard that phrase before, where once a year families would pile into the wagons and buggies and travel sometimes a great distance desert to a designated place to spend couple, a couple of weeks in a time of fellowship, preaching, and worship. After the crops were, quote, laid by each August. Many of them were so isolated, they packed an entire year of church into a short time of they had. One notable camp meeting took place near Cane Ridge, Kentucky, at a time when the entire population of the region was no more than 50,000 people. Over 25,000 people gathered in August for the Cane Ridge camp meeting, James Finley, a Methodist circuit-riding preacher, described in his journal what he saw. Listen to these words. A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of mind collected there. I stepped up on a log where I could have a better view. The scene that presented itself was indescribable. At one time, I saw at least 500 people fall on their faces in prayer as if a battery of a thousand guns had been opened up on them, and then immediately there were shouts and prayers that rent the heavens. 
as the revival spread throughout America, it touched a young lawyer who became one of its most effective preachers. His name was Charles G. Finney. He was reading the book of Romans as a requirement for a legal course he has taken. In the process of reading Romans, he was converted. He later began traveling around the country, and the entire cities, entire cities were converted. In every city he preached, he preached against social injustice, including slavery and child labor. See, these are the kind of things that happens in a real revival. And folks, I'm telling you, I think we need a real revival around here. I think it's time we get back on our knees and faces before God. Individuals are converted. Christians are restored to vitality. Cities are changed. Entire culture is affected. Okay, what about the third great awakening? Well, I've got this dream. There will be an awakening of Copperas Cove, Texas. Can you imagine seeing God move across this great city of ours? Just a small city. Not any large things going on here. Most people don't know where it is. I literally had to look up a map when y'all asked me to come here. I didn't know where it was. Never heard of it. During the 20th century, there have been some isolated outbreaks of revival. Do you know that? There was a great surge of evangelism after World War II. During the 50s, there was the Jesus movement of the 1970s and even some promising signs in the 1990s. But nothing has affected our nation, our national moral position. In fact, we continue to slide backwards spiritually and morally. Let me ask you, do you want to see revival come to our area? Whether God uses this church or not, oh, how we need a revival to break out in our churches. Why do we need a spiritual awakening? There's a twofold answer to that. Number one, the moral corruption of our culture. I don't believe you can possibly look at our culture and say, oh, man, we're doing great. Oh, we may be doing good in areas, but morally, we're almost bankrupt. It can no longer be said that America is the moral conscience of our world. Our cries for global human rights sound empty and hypocritical to people in other countries who realize that we lead the world in divorce, violence, abortion, crime, and many others. Do you realize that today people are saying in Europe they're afraid to come to America to visit, to take a vacation, because it's so dangerous on our streets? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that our culture has changed a hundred times in 50 years at least. Let me read. I don't like to read statistics, but I want to share these with you. According to USA Today magazine, just recently, within the last year, I'll say, here are some statistics. The impact of these statistics, I hope, shock you. Every day in America... 2,985 teens get pregnant. 1,106 teens have an abortion. 27 children die from poverty. 3,298 run away from home. 
437 children per day are arrested for drinking or drunk driving. 1,629 children are in adult jails. 7,742 teens become sexually active. 2,556 are born out of wedlock. 1,849 children are abused or neglected every single day. 2,989 children experience the trauma of their parents' divorce. Fifty years ago, it wasn't just Bible-believing Christians who spoke out against adultery, divorce, deviant behavior. Our society as a whole disapproved of these things, these activities. Today, not only are these common practices in our society, but many churches have turned their backs on the issues facing our teenagers and younger people because we don't want to deal with it. That's scary, folks. I agree with Billy Graham when he said back in the 1970s, if God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe he's exactly right. But let me tell you, I honestly don't believe we can blame our society or our government for these problems. You know where I think it falls? Right here in the pews of these churches. We're the ones. We know God's compass. We've been taught God's ways. And if we sit back and ignore it and let it go on, we've got nobody blamed but our own churches. We have stood by and watched society go to hell in a handbasket. We've refused to leave the refuge of our comfortable churches to be the salt and the light in a decaying, dark culture that Jesus told us to do. Just think about it. Don't, don't answer it, but how many people did you witness to the last week? Probably all about the same. You see, we're the church. We're the spiritual strength of this nation, the churches. And we sit by and do nothing. Watch people walk by every Sunday morning, pass the street, by the office every day, and never once do we say, hey, let me share something with you. French philosopher visited America over 100 years ago. He traveled from town to town talking with people, asking questions, examining every facet of society. Returning to France, he wrote these words. Let me rephrase that. He wrote these amazing words. I sought for America's greatness. I found it not in her fields and forests. I found it not in her mines and factories. I found it not in her Congress or great tribunals. It was only when I entered her churches and heard her pulpits thunder against sin and preaching righteousness that I discovered the secret of her greatness. Then he added, America is great because America is good. Remember, this is 100 years ago. If America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. It seems like too many churches have stopped thundering against sin. It seems like we're satisfied. Just pacify us and let's go home. I think it's time for that to stop. I can't change the rest of the churches in town, but folks, we can change Robertson Avenue Baptist Church. 
Do you know what the what apathy is? Pathos is a word meaning to feel deeply. But when you put that little A in front of that, it becomes apathy. It means not to feel deeply. So an apathetic Christian is someone who really doesn't care that our nation is in deep trouble. They don't care enough to attend service. They don't care enough to pray. They don't care enough to see revival come to our area, to a church, to a nation. So let me ask you, do you care? When will revival come to our land? Well, we've got the formula right there in that chapter we just read. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear and I'll change some things. Now, I paraphrase the last part. Did you hear that? Folks, if that verse right there is not true, you can take that Bible in your hand and throw it up in the trash as you walk out because there's none of it's any good. Every word that God put in that Bible can be counted on. Are we doing it? What is that talking about? Well, then for personal revival, I must have, I must be broken and have a burden to pray. It says, humble thyself and pray. Two factors are always present in every great spiritual awakening, humility and prayer. Those aren't separate things. They happen simultaneously. If you haven't already, I want to ask you today to begin to pray for our city. We all live in this area. Maybe Kempner, maybe outside, maybe Colleen, so forth, but still our area. I think we as Christians need to pray. God, begin to do something. And watch that begin to show I believe God will listen to us and hear our prayers if we become what He wants to be. I want to close today with a, with a, I guess you'd call it a poem. I don't know if it's really that or not, but I found it the other day, and I think it's good. It's called, I Am a Soldier. Author is unknown, but listen to these words. I am a soldier in the army of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is my commanding officer. The Holy Bible is my code of conduct. Faith, prayer, and the Word are my weapons of warfare. I have been taught by the Holy Spirit, trained by experience, tried by adversity, and tested by fire. I am a volunteer in this order, in this army, and I am enlisted for eternity. I will either retire in this army or die in this army, but I will not get out, sell out, be talked out, or pushed out. I am faithful, reliable, capable, and dependable. If my God needs me, I'm there. I am a soldier. I'm not a baby. I do not need to be pampered, petted, primmed up, pumped up, picked up, or pepped up. I'm a soldier. No one has to call me, remind me, write me, visit me, entice me, or lure me. I am a soldier. I'm not a wimp. I am in place saluting my king, obeying his orders, praising his name, and building his kingdom. No one has to send me flowers, gifts, cards, candy, or give me handouts. I do not need to be cuddled, cradled, cared for, or catered to. I am committed. I cannot have my feelings hurt enough to turn me around.
I cannot be discouraged enough to turn me aside. I cannot lose enough to cause me to quit. When Jesus called me to this army, I had nothing. If I end up with nothing, I will still come out even. I win. My God will supply all my needs. I am more than a conqueror. I will always triumph. I can do all things through Christ. Devils cannot beat me. People cannot disillusion me. Weather cannot worry me. Sickness cannot stop me. Battles cannot beat me. Money cannot buy me. Governments cannot silence me. And hell cannot handle me. I am a soldier. Even death cannot destroy me. For when my commander calls me from this battlefield, he will promote me to be a captain. I am a soldier. In the army, I'm marching, claiming victory. I will not give up. I will not turn around. I am a soldier marching heaven bound. And then he lists four different kinds of soldiers. Listen to this. Active duty. Serving the Lord faithfully, daily, and on duty, 24-7, 365. Reserve status. Serving only when called upon or twice a year, Christmas and Easter. Guard status. Backing up the active duty group. Number four, A-W-O-L. Absent without our Lord. Which kind are you? Be an army of one or an audience of one. And watch it change things. Let's stand together. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this time you've given us. Lord, we just pray that you would open our hearts. Lord, I don't know everyone that's here. I don't know where their spiritual condition is. But, Lord, I know that somebody is here today needing to be revived, needing to be re-enlisted if it is. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, that we would become what we used to be. And begin to serve God in a way that we can't even imagine here at this church. Every single one of us. Yes, there are some that have sickness. They can't do some things. But, Lord, they can be prayer warriors behind the scenes. Every one of us need to have a burden for true revival to come to our lives, our city, our nation, and our world. Open us up to be receptive to that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.